Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Quadcast. I'm John McAlevey, and I hope to provide you with a 30-minute or so session of OT and PT for your soul. While the podcast is mainly aimed at the disabled community, it is really for anyone just looking to be inspired. And greetings from our studios slash my bedroom. (laughs) Ha ha. I want to thank family and friends and folks I have never met before for reaching out and telling us that they like the program. I have also heard from numerous people who say, oh my goodness, John, don't take this the wrong way, but you sound really good. No offense taken. It's amazing what a little good equipment can do for you. And if you like what you hear from my velvety tones and would like to advertise, please send me a 15 to 30 second ad copy and I will gladly sing your company's praises. No charge right now, but when I hit it big, I'll come and find you. Great news is we are beginning to resonate. As I have said, I am trying to build an audience two ears at a time and it's beginning to work. The fact that we can now be found on Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts, Overcast, Podchaser, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher is big. Believe it or not, I had over 115 people download and listen to last week's show. And speaking of which, I'd like to thank my friends Hillary Frizinski and Dawn Texas again for waxing poetic about yours truly. The check is in the mail, ladies. Now, most of what I and we talked about last week had to do with the physical aspect in the aftermath of a spinal cord injury. We did not get into how an SCI not only affects a patient mentally, but also their family members and friends as well. Oftentimes, that is just as damaging to the psyche as the fact that someone will never walk again. And sadly, if someone checks out mentally due to their catastrophic injury, it will no doubt affect their drive and work ethic in the therapy room to get much better. While we already know that no two SCIs are the same, we also know that no two people are going to react the same way to suddenly being in a wheelchair. Some folks, me included, dug in and went to work. I said from day one, and I'll repeat it today, if moaning and hiding in the closet would make me better, then clear me out of spots. I'm coming in. However, I know that's not the case, so I chose to attack therapy and in doing so the rest of my life. This might sound weird, but I hearken back to an old baseball coach that I had in high school who used to use the saying, dance with the one that brung you meaning be considerate and loyal to one who has been supportive, attentive, or helpful to you. And to me, that meant my body. I only had one, and this was going to get me through the rest of my life, so I had to make the most of it. No, I don't want anyone to think that everything was just beach balls and balloons for me. Quite the contrary. I had many moments of anger and many sleepless nights and tearful times. But when it was time to work, I was ready. I will tell you that I had fellow patients who went the other way. They couldn't handle their injury in any way, shape, or form and talked about checking out physically and mentally wanting no part of their new world. And that was their mindset, their decision. And who was I to tell them how to live their life? It just wasn't for me. Let's face it, a broken arm will heal when put in a cast. Same with a leg or a wrist or a foot. However, I knew that once my spinal cord was injured, nothing below the level of said injury was ever going to be the same again. Which brings us back to the song Black Gold and those lines that spoke to me all those years ago, quote, I don't care about no wheelchair. I've got so much left to do with my life, end quote. And that was my mental point of view. 
But what must also be taken into account following a life-altering injury is that of the family members. Over the years, when I walk through the rotunda at Kessler to get to outpatient therapy, I often see family members of newly injured people, and they all have that same look on their face that says, can someone please get me the license plate for the freight train that just ran over our world? Obviously, they don't feel the pain physically that their loved one does, but their lives have changed in an instant as well. And how they adjust to the new norm is extremely important too. Like some injured folks who simply cannot accept their situation, there are family members and friends who cannot either, and they retreat. It does not make them bad or wrong. It makes them human. Have you ever heard the saying, God won't give you more than you can handle? Well, if I had a dollar for every time I heard it after my accident, I'd be Bill Gates right now. And while I'm sure it was said as a compliment because it meant that I was strong enough to handle all of this, I got sick of it rather quickly. It does, however, open the door to a discussion of spirituality and how and if it plays a role in all of this. I looked up the word spiritual in the dictionary and found this, of or relating to or consisting of spirit, of or relating to the spirit or soul as distinguished from the physical nature. Geez, what does that mean? Well, I will hopefully find out along with you today because my guest Marianne Hobby has dedicated much of her life to answering the question. She has a unique perspective and truly embodies the term walking the walk and talking the talk because she herself is a spinal cord injury survivor and thriver. Her incredible story in our conversation is up next, but first a few words from my good friends at moresportsnow.com. Hi, everyone. I'm Matt Laughlin, the radio play-by-play announcer for the New Jersey Devils. If you like what you're hearing from John McAlevey on today's show, then you'll want to check out more Sports Now's podcast. You know, John's a huge sports fan, and each week he joins me and Steve Titchener for a spirited roundtable discussion on what's going on in sports on both sides of the Hudson. Our podcast can be heard at moresportsnow.com, but also on iTunes, Spotify, and iHeart. I hope you'll check us out. And welcome back to the show. Now, when I received Marianne Hobby's resume, I didn't realize that I would celebrate a birthday just reading it from beginning to end. To say that she is accomplished would be an insult. Among many things, Marianne is a writer, educator, and artist whose stated goal at the top of her resume reads, quote, to integrate my life experiences, talent, and education in service to those whose lives have been altered by catastrophic, physically disabling experiences, terminal illness, and loss. I want to assist these individuals and their families in supporting each other as they grapple with these issues in and through the spiritual realm, end quote. Wow, Marianne, thank you for coming on and welcome to the show. You're most welcome. Thank you for the honor. Before we get into how this amazing goal became your life's calling, please tell us a little bit about your life and what you were doing before sustaining your spinal cord injury. June of 2013, I was having a fabulous summer. I had a new three-month-old grandbaby. I was going, I went to a week-long retreat in Rome with the faculty of Seton Hall where I was asked to design a course to teach in the new Department of Catholic Studies. So I was busily researching that and running and also was working 
as a youth minister in my parish up in Kenelon. So I was busy and happy and perfect health. And little did you know what was about to come around the corner. Now, I For know sure. I did my uh, nearly six-minute monologue on how my injury affected me mentally, uh, not only myself, but also my family and uh, those fellow patients around me. Uh, I wondered if you could tell our listeners here how all of a sudden being a C4 through 7 tetraparetic not only affected you, but your family as well. Wow. Well, the interesting part is there's three and a half months of my life that I don't remember. So when I came to at Kessler, I was supported always by family. My new grandbaby would come in the evening with my husband. He would carry her in an infant carrier. My daughter was a brand new teenage mom and just in school. It was really, really hard on them. Not only that, my husband, who was started a new business, his mom got um, had a heart attack and lived down the shore and she lived alone. My sister's husband had a stroke. It was not easy. And my siblings live up in New England. So it was, it was difficult, but that family stayed with me. They stayed with me. My church community stayed with me and the Seton Hall community was there for me all the time. That's amazing. I know that, um, and I conveyed this, that soon after, you know, I mentally for me, it was like, okay, I'm in this position now and I could either cry and hide in the corner. And if that was going to make me better, then I was going to do that. But I knew that that was not going to be the case. So I made the conscious decision to, okay, this is not great. And this is not what I had planned for myself, but I'm going to go after it. And mentally, I just used that to push me. Is that something that you did as well? I don't know how conscious the decision was. I do remember nights being in so much pain and praying so hard, but knowing that I couldn't let anybody down that was praying for me. Mm -hmm. That's what pushed me. My circle of friends that was always there. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I'm an athlete at heart and I have family legacies to live up to. When I was in the gym, my brother at the age of 62 bicycled across the United States of America in six and a half weeks. Wow. So, you know, right. <laughs> so wow. Like that's no shabby, you know, that's one of the, all my siblings are all, they all swim and do all kinds of stuff. I knew I couldn't slack, mm -hmm. you know. That was a that was something that I spoke with uh, Mikey Nichols with a couple of weeks ago. He was injured playing hockey, and he told me that um, his job on the ice was to be a scrappy guy to sort of mix things up and be in the middle of everything. And it was that work ethic on the ice that really, uh, you know, pushed him through therapy. Is is that something that um, you know you being an avid? I think you would, said you did triathlons before this and did a lot of walking and running. Is that something that really pushed you in the PT gym as well? Oh yeah. As a runner, you just keep setting goals and keep get going toward them. You don't give up. And 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 then there was I can remember a day like being so despondent. It was just really. And you know what I thought of? My husband had told me makes me cry. One of my nieces in Massachusetts has four kids. She has three school age kids at that point. She told them they she wanted them to walk to school as long as Aunt Marianne couldn't walk instead of taking the bus. So it was things like that. It was love and and things like that that just kept pushing me. Being an athlete, the way I grew up, all that kind of things. That's really mm -hmm. powerful. Um, you know, Marianne, I coach 
uh, basketball, and I have done so. Um, this upcoming season will be my 20th year on the bench as the head coach in Milburn. And it's funny because not only can I not hold a basketball any longer, I can't even dribble one. And, and I tell the boys that, that come out for my team each and every year that, okay, guys, listen, I can't do these things anymore. You're going to have to be my legs and run around for me. You're going to have to be my arms and, and shoot the basketball for me because I can't do that any longer. So I can see exactly where you're coming from when you said that about your, uh, your nieces and nephews. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, people will want to. People will want to help out, and people will want to be there for uh, for folks uh, in their time of need. It's amazing when we find that out. Sure is. Now, Marianne, tell me about was your background the the one that you had in counseling and Eucharistic ministering? Did that suddenly become a huge help for you, not only personally, but with your interaction with fellow patients and their family members? I mean, did you almost kind of find yourself not only trying to heal your own body and mind when you were suddenly injured, but that of others as well? It happened subtly, and I didn't think about my background, but one day um, they were supposed to have an interfaith service and it got canceled, and I was so sad. And I went back down to my floor and Monsignor Liddy appeared, my a friend from campus. And he and I sat together and I said, I really miss being a youth minister. And he looked at me and he said, you're ministering every day from that chair. I was incredulous. I didn't know what he meant. Mm. And then I started realizing people were finding me. And this is not in the very beginning when I was so, so sick, but people were finding me and there were a lot of broken hearts. So... It's, I don't know. My husband says, oh my God, God light is on. That happens. But yeah, that was, that gave me, I wanted to feel needed and I felt like I could help and I would do anything that I could to help. Absolutely. And did you find that some of your fellow uh, inpatients sort of were um, coming up to you and asking you or were they uh, trying to feed off of your good vibes and the spirituality that you exuded? I don't. That's a very nice thing to say. I don't know. The guys I just kind of hung with and the women, I would see pain on people's faces too and be able to go up to them and see if I can get two cents in, you know, Mm -hmm. to a family member or something. But it wasn't really a defined role then. In that respect, tell us about, um, listen, I have what's coming up on what will be 28 year relationship with, with Kessler Institute for rehabilitation up in West orange. And I, I often tell my friends up there that I've known forever that, um, you know, driving up the hill there is like coming home in a way. Yes. I feel that, that it is a, a home away from home for me because while, uh, I walk, it's not a thing of beauty and, you know, out in public while people might, have a look and you know wonder what's going on when i walk around up at kessler i'm just john and that's just fine so mm-hmm. tell me about your you know relationship with kessler uh, and share with uh, our listeners the work that you've done since your discharge and how fulfilling that has been for you well kessler is the love of my life i tried to leave them it doesn't work <laughs> when i went back for to start my outpatient I went upstairs to sign up for the peer program with Ron, but the, some nurses stopped me. And I said, well, I'm here to sign up for the peer program. And they said, 
no, no, we want you to run a spirituality group. And I said, what's a spirituality group? They said, we don't know, but you could do it. So the spirituality group was born. And we did that once a week for pretty much for four years. And that was very, very powerful. Um, learned about the power of connection. People could come in. It was different people every week. And I said, floor's open. I did some inspirational stuff. And whatever you wanted to find spirituality, whatever gives you strength in life. And that's where I found my passion that's never stopped because there is a power in connection. And people found hope. Even if they came in the room kind of separated, somehow they connected and that, that gave hope. And then, you know, I became a Eucharistic minister there for a while. Then we moved. We moved up to Morris County. So, um, but I went back down to start some outpatient therapy and Miss Bonnie Evans found me and suggested I come back again to help out. So I look forward to the quarantine being over so that I can go down and help once a week, perhaps. Get back into it again, right? Mm-hmm. Now, Marianne, yeah. how, how do you find it when uh, spiritually you try to help not only a person who's newly injured or someone that has, um, you know, a terminal illness? First of all, when you walk in the room, what is the mindset that you're going to want to uh, try and set up the parameters of what you're going to talk about? And then how do you deal with someone that is all in and wants to be a part of the conversation you're going to have. And then again, how you would deal with someone who is mad at the world and doesn't want to talk about it and wants to throw in the towel. Very astute questions. I spent four years also at the same time at Overlook um, in chaplaincy school. So I met people, end of life grappling, all kinds of things, sickle cell anemia. And I meet somebody where they're at. I'm not there to change anybody's mind. For me, being a presence of love and acceptance, that's the bottom line for me. You can't push anybody. And people respect and get that they're being accepted. And that's where the groundwork is laid. Mm -hmm. And people have to grieve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, go ahead. People, no, people have to grieve. And they have to be acknowledged. It's just not like, oh, let's be cheerleaders and all oh, everything's going to get better. And that's not the way it is. Each person's on their own journey and needs to be acknowledged in the pain, for the pain that they're in and their loss that they're suffering. And then from there you build. Right. And the anguish, and the anguish is a part, I call it kenosis, you know, the emptying out of self. And that anguish, something can build. Yes. And do you find it that um, oftentimes family members want to be involved? Like maybe after you're done speaking with the patient that's in the bed as you're walking out of the hospital room or the uh, recovery room, do you find that, you know, a, a husband or a son or a nephew will grab you and say, hey, do you have a minute where I can chat with you as well? That happens. Also, I can read faces pretty much. And you can see somebody's, oftentimes their heart and soul is in that face, in that pain. I used to call it my elevator ministry because oftentimes I would see people on the floors, say at Kessler, and by the time I was changing floors and on the elevator, I'd meet someone. And I can't tell you how many parents or spouses I had in my arms just sobbing mm. when they had to let the facade down. So, yeah, I mean, it's not normally being sought out. It goes both ways. Yeah. 
it's now, just you, pain, just pain. Yeah, pain is pain. Do you ever have some folks that are just in, <clears throat> excuse me, too much pain that they'll either tell you, "This isn't for me. I, I'd rather you leave." Um, and then maybe they come back down the road and say, okay, I'm ready now. I mean, not everybody is ready to to accept this right at the same time, right? Correct. And there's been plenty of people that said get lost when they've gone into rooms. And I'm not talking about Kessler now, I'm talking about as a, as a chaplain. So you begin to assess that. Again, it's respecting where the person's at and loving enough without even saying anything. Mm-hmm. I've, I've had some beautiful relationships like that. Oh, I can imagine. I can yeah. I can only imagine how many folks' lives you have changed. I can recall when I was an inpatient, there was an orderly there. His name was Juice, and he was from the islands, and he was the most positive person in the world. He would not let you have a bad day. He would come in the room, and he was constantly picking you up. I mean, he was an institution at Kessler. I think he was probably gone by the time you had gotten there, um, mm-hmm. but- I mean, he just would not let you have a bad day. Oh, the, the, uh, I don't know the proper title, but I call them AIDS. My AIDS were backbones. Yeah. They're backbones. I mean, the therapists were phenomenal with, you know, Jenna and Karen and Rachel and all the people whose names I forget. I don't want to, you know, Liz, everybody. But the nighttime, when sometimes when I had my worst moments and wanted to give up, I would always say an angel came to me with rubber soles on their feet. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't realize, I didn't realize all this while it was going on, you know? And then, you know, Giovanni, everybody was on time. And toward the end, when I had Miss Sadie in the morning, she'd come in and I learned, you know, people would say, so it was night and there was day. I didn't sleep at night, but it's day. So let's go, no time. She would sing Motown and I would like sing one line of Motown and, you know, whatever, whatever. The AIDS, the whole, for me, Kessler is a family. The people that went out of their way to make sure I had my food. The people that cleaned the floors. <laughs> there wasn't anybody left out. It's true. Growing up in Short Hills, I was right down the street from there. And I always say that playing on as many sports teams as I did, I had driven past that building a zillion times going from game to game. And never did I really look up the hill to to see what was going on there. And lo and behold, as we mentioned earlier, it'll be 28 years now that uh, that I'm affiliated with the place. It's not somewhere that you want to have to go, but if you're in this situation, it's where you want to go, right? There you go. The yeah. best. Yeah. Uh, Marianne, tell us about, uh, pun intended here, your hobby of artwork. Mm-hmm. Tell us what it is and how that has been cathartic for you through the years. Before I was hurt, I was going to have a photography photography um, show. My friend had a studio and that was going to work out well, but obviously I went to the ICU instead of showing up for my show. <laughs> And um, Chris Byrne, at the art therapist at Kessler, I always say he saved my soul. He understood. He, I, they would put um, a, a straw in my mouth, and I would pick the color by telling them the color because my hands didn't work, obviously. And breathing was so hard, but I would spray. You know, I grew in progression. That was really. One of my most, those are my sacred moments, no matter how bad I was feeling, Chris got it. And he encouraged me. 
he said, an hour a day for OT, an hour a day for PT when you leave, but an hour a day for art. And I thought, huh? And he was right. So over time, it was, it was just painting and then teaching my grandbaby to paint with me. And then now I, I started to wear my phone around my neck because I didn't have such great hand use. But I've kept it there and that's my phone. My phone is my camera. Isn't it amazing so, what you can yeah. do with them now? Oh, yeah. And it's just there. So when I come upon a sweet little animal or a corner or a picture or something, it's just there. So that's how my artwork works for me and Un my music. Unbelievable. Yeah. And did you have with fellow patients with you? Were they taking part in that as well with Chris? And, and did they uh, jump in and get into artwork as well? Well, yeah, that's part of the therapy there. Chris, um, I guess your PT, they all work as a team. There's some kind of team, and then you might ask for to work with him, or they might seek you out and ask and ask. So mm -hmm. sometimes it's group, sometimes it's one on one. That's He's terrific. A treasure. Yeah, it's yeah. that's the sort of something I referred to. I made this term up a long time ago. I call it mental floss, and it sort of like mm -hmm. cleans your cleans your head out a little bit uh, and takes mm -hmm. you away from the mats of of the mm -hmm. therapy gym and takes you away from the uh, the rigors of putting your world back together and just lets you mm -hmm. be human again and and pick mm -hmm. up something like that for me it was it was sports it was reading about my favorite teams uh, in the newspaper those don't exist anymore kids I guess you could google that newspapers don't exist anymore <laughs> but there was no real internet or anything you know back when when I was up there so it was immersing myself in things away from stuff like real life things that mm -hmm. that sort of made me me again and do you felt the same way oh yeah I can, and i can remember too one of my um priest friends coming to visit me and talking to me i'm like no 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 don't talk about this what book are you editing talk to me about you know i wanted to be a part of that other world that i would gotten thrown out of yeah right you know you know you don't know where you are what's happening so sure sure and uh Marianne, what are the challenges physically for you now. I mean, I, with my injury being a central cord syndrome, uh, I like to tell folks that I can get up and walk wherever I want to. I just can't do a bloody thing when I get there because my arms and hands and whatnot don't work. What, what are your, you know, biggest setbacks still to this day? And, and what are you hoping, um, for the future for that? Well, I've, since I came home, I started doing yoga on my bed every single solitary day, even though it, I couldn't do much of anything. But um, over time, that uncurled my fingers and made me strong. I started to play the piano last year. Um, I used to play before I got hurt, but my hands, it didn't hurt my fingers, tips. And my hands, I was like, I'd hear these horrible sounds, but I couldn't make my fingers go where I wanted them to. And now... I start, I, then I taught myself from kindergarten level up and I have a piano teacher. So that's helping. Um, neuro, neurogenic bowel is not easy to live with. It's a pain in the neck yeah. and other things. Um, sure. <laughs> my forearms spasm and lock down. And that's what was keeping me from driving. I kept saying, I've got to go at least six months. And then finally I said, you know what? Um, and I called the, the adaptive driving folks and this happened, but I was, I'm going to start and let them test me anyway. And then balance, I did get a little tune up. They did their, their magic on me in the outpatient. Um, so I could stand up because I was like not being able to stand up very well. And 
you know, and, and then my balance. Um, I also have ICU associated PTSD that came along as part of this package. Wow. So, and I have, yeah, I have a horrible startle reflex. If a noise, I hear a noise, I could be on the ground in seconds. <laughs> oh, jeez. And yeah. And, um, so I when guess, I'm triggered, I guess yeah, we shouldn't sit next to Marianne at the 4th of July fireworks. <laughs> she won't be at the 4th of July fireworks. There's <laughs> oh, things geez. I know better now. Yes. And that's part of why we left the city because cars, especially if you walk a little funnier, a little slower, they just want to hurry up and go around the corner or they have to beep their horns and their sirens. So this has been a very big help. I'm hoping to get a PTSD therapy dog. And when I started reading about what they could do, I was just fascinated. But then I looked at the price tag that went with them. I'm like, well, that's a little beyond our reach right now. So, so I'm hoping for that to come along. That, that will would, help. That would be awesome. Can I tell you that I am on the waiting list for a service dog with the Canines for Companions folks? Ah, they're the best. I mean, what would we do without them at Kessler? They were, yeah, oh, good for you. Good. Yeah. I hope you get one. It's something that, that my therapist told me way back in the day, John, you better get on the list. It's really long. You better try. You better try. Well, yeah. <laughs> growing up, I had asthma. I was a terrible asthmatic, wow. so I couldn't have any pets. My sister uh, was a hay fever person, and so we never had mm-hmm. any pets. I always wanted to have a dog. I can remember uh, going to sleep over at my best friend's house, and he had the most beautiful uh, Irish setter, and I loved the dog. And I knew, I knew I'd be there for two hours, and I'd have to call my parents. They'd have to come and pick me yeah. up because I was sneezing and wheezing and whatnot. But I've outgrown that. And I'm hoping that um, it looks like it will be, I've been on the waiting list now for, it's going to be about a year now in a month. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately now with the world, uh, the way it is right. now with the coronavirus and whatnot, everything has been pushed back. So it might still be yet another year before I'm able to uh, to go for training and, and get the dog. But I'm really looking forward to uh, having it not only to help me, but to be as a friend in the house also. There you go. Yeah. Now, speaking of the coronavirus, how has the world we're living in now curtailed what you do on an everyday basis? Well, it's kind of funny because people started saying, you know, they have to be isolated, stay at home. I'm like, oh, welcome to my world. You know, all of us, when we had to go home and all of a sudden we were in the house all the time, was like, what is this? You know, and I didn't watch television. I stared out the window. But for this virus this time, it was hard to be that I couldn't see my daughter and grandbaby, you know, my daughter's family. And I had to, I was like the Bible study, women's Bible study group. They went on Zoom, but I ended up getting triggered as soon as anybody talked about it. So, which is causing me more damage. So I had to really isolate myself and I walk. Um, I just walk all the time and thank you where we are. There's not a lot of people. Yeah. So, and I just hope, I hope, I hope now going forward that I can reach more people and, and help more people because, you know, I've dealt with my trauma and live with what I've got and never mind the caretakers and every frontliners and all that kind of thing that are happening. So I know there's work to do and I hope to do that in our home. Also, we call it Hope House. And before I was getting, before this happened, I was having a retreat once a month, women's retreats, small retreats. Um, small groups of people. So obviously that hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. So is that something you know. that 
hopefully in the not too distant future with with socially distancing and masks and stuff like that that maybe you could get back to sooner rather than later we'll see how it unfolds to me i just have to be patient and i i do a lot of prayer and maybe there'll be more work online and zooming and who knows you know i'm in toastmasters and to learn how to i ask them to help me deliver a more effective message i don't want anything i do to get away the message mm -hmm. so hopefully i can connect and reach more with people with technology so we'll see what happens absolutely and marianne tell us about the public speaking that you do i know that you've given uh addresses all all around the place tell us first of all how you prepare for the audience you're going to speak with and then um basically how you put together the game plan as to what you're going to tell them about that's interesting because it's varied and I've done, I did best about six talks before we moved up here. And then, of course, I found Toastmasters, which is free, and in the next town, and, and they help also. But for me, it's what does the audience need and how does that match what I can give? And then I'll just get an idea of what kind of your, your timing is. You know, basically, my messages are about hope. They're about restoring dignity. So whatever it pans out mm -hmm. and that's that's the way it is now it's you know i'm not seriously i haven't done anything that's not true i've done a lot but i'm not out there and once i could start talking and people find out you know then i would come and so we'll see how it grows yeah we'll see how it grows absolutely and lastly what is next for you mary and is there any other um itch that you need to scratch? I mean, are you, do you have something that you haven't accomplished that you have on your bucket list kind of a thing? Um, oh, anything sure. in that respect? Well, my friend is helping me edit my book now, so that should be coming out in the fall, we hope. And then I have not earned a doctorate yet. And I finally, real, I finally, I know that I have learning disabilities. And so I found someone to help me who's assessing me and I'm going you know I'm just going to cry I'm going to start my first course as a non-matric at Fordham in the doctor of ministry program the DMIN program which I was I, I found and was fell in love with right before I got hurt so I was able to go back there in March actually the day before the shutdown and go to a conference and there's a wonderful woman there Dr. Wordle who's done work with um, post-traumatic growth there's a priest, Father McAloon, who is doing spirituality and disability. I'm like, here I am. <laughs> so, so I'm hoping that that happens and it's all online. That's all outstanding. Online. Yeah. So back to yeah. school, uh, for those that didn't get a chance to look at Marianne's resume, she has degrees from a number of schools, Fairleigh Dickinson, I know, Syracuse, Seton Hall, and there's one I'm missing. True. And Drew also. And not just degrees. She graduates most often summa cum laude or cum laude. And I'll, I'll have to tell our audience, <laughs> I graduated college radio's too laude. So that's what... <laughs> That's the one I never heard. That. Yeah, that's uh, that's an old one that I use all the time. But amazing. So that that's an that's very cool. You'll have to keep us posted on how that Fordham thing goes. Well, again, and the reason I'm so attracted to it because I don't want to just do head head stuff. And what they require is, is how is this going to be apply applying, right? So it's to help that the population that's been marginalized, we disabled us folks off in the corner, you know. 
So I'm very excited. Let's see what happens if I get into the program. Let's just see. And then you'll be back to Kessler with that newfound knowledge to help just think how many more people you'll be able to help out. Uh, Kessler, Kessler, as long as my heart is open, they help me. Oh, that's outstanding. And Marianne, I want to thank you not only for coming on and sharing some time with us here on the quadcast today, but for all the work you've done for and about the community, the disabled community. Um, I think it's, it's a tribute to you and who you are, and we look forward to more of your great work in the future. Thank you so much, John. I really appreciate it. And with that, another episode of the Quadcast is in the books. My thanks once again to Marianne Hobby with a tip of the cap to Jean Zanka for the suggestion and background information. I appreciate the work of Chris Parapesco at Sound Lounge in New York City again. Thank you for making us sound so good, Chris. And make sure to come back next week when my guest will be Doug Olson, Senior Development Director Northeast at Challenged Athletes Foundation. CAF is a unique nonprofit organization that helps people with physical challenges live full, active lives through participation in fitness activities and competitive sports. Did someone say sports? I'm all ears. And speaking of ears, if you like what you hear, please tell a friend or 10. I'm trying to build my audience two ears at a time. The Quadcast can be found at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Podchaser, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. Once again, I am John McAlevey, and I thank you for your time. I don't